Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman. Saturday down south on this episode, Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, and myself are going to break down Florida's strong-ass W over the LSU Tigers uh, Saturday, and we will break down Florida's road trip to a red-hot Alabama who is going to be coming off a victory in Knoxville against top 10 Tennessee teams. So uh, lots to talk about. A really terrific basketball game in the O'Connell Center today. Um, and uh, as we record on a Saturday night. And so that'll be fun. And then we'll uh, obviously enjoy breaking down the Crimson Tide. Thanks for listening. Remember that uh, we need ratings. Um, if you could drop a review at Apple or, you know, uh, hit us up with, with a star rating, uh, five-star rating if you can, if you want. Uh, we love feedback. You can find us at Florida BB Hour. Listen to us on Spotify. Drop a heart. Make sure you follow us. Um, all those things matter. They help our placement. They help us get sponsorships. Uh, just little things that, that will help us keep the show going. But we really appreciate you guys uh, listening, and a happy new year to all of you. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Florida plays their SEC home opener today, and um, as has often been the case, in games between the Gators and the LSU Tigers under Will Wade, a really thrilling college basketball game. I thought a very, very good, high-level college basketball game, well played by both teams. Florida, the good guys, come up with a uh, strong-ass W, Eric. It was. It was indeed. Um, and it's great to say that. I mean, uh, it was really interesting on the broadcast. Like, obviously, I should have probably known this, uh, but just to hear the fact that like Mike White is six and three against uh, against LSU or well now seven and three, uh, which just one just like frames how many times these teams uh, play. It seems like they, you know, seems like they play five times a year, uh, yeah. but they've, they've always made for, for really good games. And man, this was, this was a treat. Like in terms of just true college basketball fandom, this was a super entertaining game to watch. And it's not often, I mean, I think you could argue that there's like, there's maybe five NBA players in the, in this game. I, I four is probably the, the safe answer. And it's, it's not often you're, you're going to see that, especially when a lot of these NBA players aren't one and done. They're, they're returning guys who have that experience and are going to play a little bit better than one and done's usually do. And uh, just incredible shot making all around the floor. Uh, 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 I mean, man, Cameron Thomas, um, you know, word is that, uh, you know, LSU paid, paid well to get him, but they, uh, they might've gotten their money's <laughs> worth because man, Cameron Thomas, just as good of a score as, as you'll find in college basketball, uh, Trey man showing why he was a uh, McDonald's all American. That was something that you tweeted out, Neil. And I just thought hit the nail on the head to, to see him hitting those shots off movement, uh, to see that one James Harden step back move was just yeah. so pure, uh, man, it was just a really, really fun, fun basketball game. And, you know, I don't want to be a victim of recency bias, but I, I, I don't know if we've had just like it, it, a lot of games that are 
as similarly joyful and just enjoyable to watch as this one over the last couple of years. Um, this Florida team is just really fun to watch. And that was a really fun LSU team. And uh, you know what? Like uh, there was some questionable officiating. There was some sloppy play at the end by both teams. But it's like, man, that's that's college basketball. And I don't think yeah. it could be a truly great college basketball game if there wasn't some questionable officiating if there wasn't a bad technical if there wasn't a team that almost blew it at the end like you know I don't I don't want to say the Gators almost blew it but they like almost put themselves in a position where you thought they might blow it uh man it had everything I just I just loved it I was just so happy to uh to be a basketball fan today yeah it was a spectacular uh basketball game I actually had I was texting with Eric a lot uh during the game and you know also had a couple dms from from some national people who who have uh, stumbled across our podcast, bless their souls, <laughs> and we're like, "Hey, man, this is such a fun game, and I'm having such a good time watching this." And so it's kind of cool when when that happens, you know, that people are tuned in, and for it to be a nationally broadcast game, I think is great because you know people watching that that aren't as familiar with the Florida program right now see they they saw a really fun brand of basketball. Uh, played by the Gators, and and I, I agree. You know, one one of those national writers said, you know, the crazy thing about this game is that there would potentially be maybe six NBA guys, but he said even with Keontae on the bench, you're looking at four NBA guys and about three guys who are going to live in the G League, <laughs> and um, and you know, Florida, Florida comes out uh, on top. I thought, uh, you know, I guess start at the beginning, right? Start with the first half. I kind of thought, and I'm interested in uh, your take on this, Eric. I thought Florida was a little bit fortunate to be tied at halftime. Like I thought defensively, they were a little discombobulated in the first half. LSU kind of did what they wanted uh, to me offensively in the first half. And then Florida, um, I'm not even sure Florida was necessarily taking bad shots uh, in the first half. Although I think, you know, certainly you could say that that there was some of that, but Florida didn't defend the three-point line well and wasn't making three. So to go into the break tied, I thought was was kind of a big deal. Yeah, I think so. It was actually crazy to to look back at the game. There was kind of like the feel in my gut was that like, oh yeah, like LSU was up by you know eight or nine at one point, but the, the biggest lead they had was actually five, and it was right at the end when they were up forty to thirty-five before the Gators um, had those two buckets to tie it at the half. But it really felt like like LSU was controlling things, and and part of that was definitely uh, looking at Trenton Watford and saying, "Wow, it doesn't look like the Gators have uh, a great option to handle him." And then there were some times where Florida just played really good defense on um, on Cameron Thomas, and he hit a tough shot and, and maybe yeah. got fouled, maybe didn't. Come couple times uh but man he uh, he hit some tough ones where florida defended well those are those are backbreakers but uh but yeah all over the offensive glass was trenton watford a couple other guys uh and then you all you even see javante smart who um hit threes just like we talked about going into the game that somehow we found a way to hit threes in a way he has in his whole career and uh and then at the end once again um florida's shot making uh their ability to hit big shots that's what kind of saved them and uh i, I would also say that was when tyree appleby came in the game and, and really, really change things, uh, especially with his passing ability, because, yeah, for most of the first half, Florida had one assist. They were sitting on one single assist. Uh, then Tyree Appleby came in and, and had a couple key ones, including that um, that Daruji three to uh, to send the game tied going into halftime. But, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely with you, Neil. I thought they were uh, they were pretty fortunate to be to be where they were at at the, at the half. Yeah. And, you know, 
if you can have a quiet 28, uh, <laughs> Cameron Thomas, like, I don't, I don't think he did because he hit some of these circus shots that you're talking about that are just naturally loud. But at the same time, he was 7 of 19 from the field, which was his second worst shooting percentage he's had this season. Um, I thought he was bothered by Florida a little bit at times. I mean, he, he only had two turnovers, but I thought, you know, he certainly could have had more. And there were, there were circumstances where, you know, he looked a little bit indecisive, which he hasn't looked. And then 11 of his 28 came at the free throw line. I wanted to make this comment before we get too deep into this game because I just thought this is kind of a testament to your comment about it being a really good college basketball game. Like the free throws in this game, LSU was 88% at the line. Florida shot 87%. And it was kind of an awkwardly officiated game, but it was awkwardly even in the sense that LSU shot 25 free throws and Florida shot 23. So nobody was like doing the whole – Mike White, when we play Florida State, hey, are we allowed to shoot free throws also thing? <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely a testament to uh, to how well the game was played. I say you I'd say I guess you look at the the turnover column and there's definitely some some sloppy ones there. And uh, but other than that, yeah, I, I didn't even think about the free throw shooting. But yeah, I, I knew obviously Florida had ones to finish uh, to kind of close things out. And I knew Cam Thomas had 11 free throws because he hit all of them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean. When uh, when you're when you're making your free throws, that's usually uh, usually a mark of a of a of a good college basketball game. Yeah, and and I mean, like even the turnovers, you know, Florida had 13, but nine of them were LSU steals, right? Like I, that, yes, you know, Florida has to do things. Some of those steals were pretty easy steals. These aren't like you know elite thievery, but still, like making the other team make the play in some situations, as opposed to throwing the ball away. I thought LSU was a little looser with the ball than Florida. Um, particularly it, actually in stretches of the first half where, you know, Florida was able to kind of claw back into the game and, and stick around. And it was a game that very easily, I thought, like I've said, could have gotten away from Florida a little bit, but didn't. You know, what did you think that Florida did at halftime to adjust to, to you know, where they were just much more effective and efficient offensively in the second half? Um, I have a crazy stat to uh, to tell you. Um, okay. So don't look now, but Florida, your Florida Gators, your Mike White-led Florida Gators are the number one team in the country in pick-and-roll offensive efficiency, um, which is a shocking, <laughs> shocking number to me. Um, they're at 1.3 wow. points per possession on pick-and-rolls. Um, wow. But uh, but this leads into what uh, what I kind of want to say. So Florida ran over. I don't have the number in front of me, but last year they had over. I think they. I want to say they had 30, 34% of their offensive possessions came out of the pick and roll. This year they're at 15%. So that is a drastic, drastic drop down. And uh, the national average um, last year, I think, was around 24, 25% for, for teams. So what Florida is doing is, is they are running the pick and roll so much less than than so many other teams. And I think that part of that, uh, their efficiency and the fact that they don't run many of them, uh, something kind of, kind of speaks to is like, hey, if you're going to run pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll, uh, teams are going to start to get used to it and they're going to be able to guard it. And I think that's something we saw last year as Florida ran pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll. Um, they had some success in it, but uh, the defense kind of settles in. They they know how you space the floor. They know where to be. And it just seemed that every time Florida ran a pick and roll, it was well spaced. It was um, they there was you know it was it was having 
your Trey Manns um, with it, it was having Colin Castleton screen for Trey Mann. It wasn't, hey, let's run ball screen continuity where it's going to end with a Scotty Lewis or a Noah Locke pick and roll. So it's like always Florida's best players. And and that was something that also I think contributed to, to just how crisp Florida was offensively was when they ran pick and rolls, it was very much, hey, we want this player screening for this player and we want the floor space this way and that's kind of how you get a lot of quality possessions versus uh let's you know we're gonna move the ball around and and run pick and rolls every time it gets this part of the floor because that's how you get your second and third and fourth best players running pick and rolls um so that's my one crazy stat of the day florida being the best pick and roll team in the country after after this game um insanity honestly um but one thing that's crazy is 15% of Florida's um, possessions have also come out of isolation, which mm. is much, much higher than they, than they did last year. And again, I think ISO ball is, is kind of, uh, some people hear that and they don't think of it particularly positively. Uh, but once again, I, I see ISO ball as a way to get the, ha- get the ball in the hands of your best players. And um, when you play ISO ball, I mean, you see this in the NBA all the time you make sure you're going to win or lose with your best players. Uh, and there's something to be said about just uh, about that. You're not going to, uh, you're not going to lose with your fifth best offensive option, making a poor play. You're going to live and die with your stars. And um, I think against LSU uh, where Trey Mann had some of those huge moments where uh, Tyree Appleby had some, some great moments distributing the basketball. Um, it came because Florida picked their spots, picked their matchup. And uh, that was something I thought was really good. Yeah, one I tweeted about was the play at the end of the half where Florida comes out and they flood the corners um, to space the floor, right? And and you get both corners where guys are just stuck there at spots they feel comfortable shooting the ball. You isolate Tyree Appleby, get the kick to Anthony DeRuji, who had been in that corner for a long time, didn't have to do much, sets his feet, bang, tie game. And, like, that's just really simple basketball, but – uh, it's very effective, and I'm sure we'll talk about spacing the floor and flooding the corners when we get to Alabama. But um, <laughs> we, we're we not quite uh, there yet. So I guess the question I have is what adjustment did they make beyond, like, do we just start making this the Colin Castleton portion of the show? <laughs> hey, man, I he backed it up. He backed up a huge performance against Vanderbilt. And Goodness. there was, uh, again, I think the way that he kind of puts pressure on uh, on, on opposing defenses just with his length, with his offensive rebounding, with his ability to catch anywhere in the paint and, and have the touch that uh, that he can finish. Like, to, to see the range, like, how far from the hoop he can still do just, like, a right-hand hook shot, uh, it's awesome. And, man, he just brings an element that's just, you know, very different than, than Florida has had. And, and I know that obviously Carrie Blackshear was a player who was a really good post-up option. Um, but it just seems like, like Castleton is someone who's, who's a bit more decisive with the basketball when he gets it down low than, than Blackshear wasn't. Um, part of that too is, I mean, uh, Castleton isn't getting defended the same way Blackshear was in terms of um, quick double teams and, and, and stuff like that. But uh, Colin Castleton as well, someone talking about free throw shooting, he went to the line and knocked down all seven of his attempts. And one thing I really love about Castleton, and I think this is really, really important to kind of Florida's ceiling. Uh, I think that teams kind of get into trouble in college basketball when their best offensive five is not their best defensive five. Right. And I think you look at Florida's teams these last couple of years and, um, you know, Kavarius Hayes, outstanding defender, um, improved offensively in, in his last season, but not someone you would call a plus offensive player by any stretch of the imagination. Gary Blackshear, great offensive player, 
Gators got into a whole lot of trouble in, in big situations with him guarding key possessions. But uh, you know what? With with all due respect to, to Omar Payne, I think Colin Castleton is Florida's best offensive option at center, and I think he's their best defensive option at center. And uh, I think that that's when you look at how Florida builds their lineups, when you look at how they are going to close games, the fact that uh, their best offensive option at the center is also their best defensive option, uh, at least in my opinion, I think that that's encouraging. So I agree, and I went back and counted, in fact, that one thing that Castleton is clearly very good at is offensive rebounding. And I, I went back and counted um, last season, and I didn't get to do two seasons. Uh, so apologies to everyone for not going the full Eric Fawcett on my deep dive. But uh, LSU was, was in offensive rebounding last year. They were out-rebounded on the offensive glass one time. Uh, and in fact, they were so dominant on the offensive glass that only in four games, Eric, were teams within five offensive rebounds of them. Cool. Four times. Uh, Florida uh, loses the offensive rebounding battle, believe it or not, by one. Really, basically like in the last two minutes of the game, right? When it's kind of hard to rebound because you don't want to foul. Um, and Florida's fouling anyway, so I don't really know why they didn't just crash the glass, but... Um, in any of it, Florida with 13 offensive rebounds, Castleton with three of them, uh, Florida with six points off Castleton offensive rebounds. So I, I don't know if you've looked at this yet. I will ask you and, and see, maybe, you know, how many minutes do you think Castleton played today? <sighs> 20. He played 19 minutes. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's for him to, for him to rebound, uh, to just like, I mean, it obviously you were missing him and, and talking about adjustments. I mean, <laughs> as much as it's, <laughs> was it uh, was it really an adjustment? It was, Hey, you're able to get Colin Castleton back on the floor. Um, uh, of which again, this is a, uh, this is a rant that I've been on many times on, on the podcast. Uh, so Colin Castleton ends up only playing 19 minutes. That is a significant penalty that foul trouble put him in. Right. Uh, he finished the game with three fouls. So he had fouls to play with. And, uh, so again, this is kind of my problem with taking a player off. This is a perfect example of why I'm not a huge fan of like automatic sending a player with two fouls to the bench in the first half. So Colin Castleton played 19 minutes. He, that that's, that's worse than fouling out. You know, in my opinion, I, I would, I would anticipate if he played until he had five fouls, at least he's playing more than 19 minutes. I can guarantee you that. So by putting him to the bench for so, so long in the first half, because of foul trouble, you incurred the penalty of him fouling out without him actually fouling out. So this is uh, you know, it's a rant I've been on several times. And again, this is just the perfect example where, uh, where a player like Colin Casson, who's playing awesome is only held to 19 points or sorry, 19 minutes. And only has three fouls, and uh, yeah, but hey, he made those he made those minutes count. Yeah, well, we and we got to see that great play by Osiah Asifo because you know Castleton wasn't back in the game. But. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, maybe it wasn't even foul trouble. You know, it was just it was Osifo's time to, to get we, there. Yeah, we just needed, <laughs> we just all needed that moment from Osiah Asifo, right? Uh, so, what is Florida doing that's really uh, you know effective in getting Castleton the ball? Because the entry passes in Bubbleville were so bad that you worried that that like maybe Florida wasn't really going to be able to do that. And suddenly like Florida is pretty efficiently and cleanly getting the ball to him. Uh, well, this is uh this is one area where I think that you've got some really good secondary passers like a Scotty Lewis who are really getting the ball inside to, to him really well. And the other thing too, is Castleton is so good at sealing his man, which I think is such an underrated skill that you're just, you're not going to be 
like you're not going to really notice at first like oh wow that big man is so good at sealing his dude so he can get an entry pass but uh uh, but man, he's so good at using doing that, using his length, using his size, and using his frame to uh, to create angles, so so guys can get him the ball. And I was chuckling at first just because I think Scotty Lewis threw the greatest entry pass of all time um, to Omar Payne in the second half, I think. And and unfortunately, oh, Omar Payne so missed the layup. Um, I'm glad you remember the play. Uh, but that was like the greatest, like the the window that Scotty Lewis put that pass in was just brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, it was hitting the tight end in the hands and it just falling to the to the turf on that one, unfortunately. But yeah, great zipper flashback from the cotton ball. <laughs> oh no, oh no. Um but uh but yeah, I, I think that it, it, Colin Castleton deserves a lot of credit. Um I also think again, Colin Castleton is being so decisive with the basketball and sometimes it ends with an early miss because he doesn't uh you know, he maybe could have taken three or four more dribbles and dribbled his man a little bit closer to the hoop, but instead he he takes a hook shot from a little further out. But because he's got a quicker jump than most other centers and because he's longer. He gets second chance opportunities. And I mean, in this game, it turned into, there's a couple of times where he had a, you know, three shots of the hoop and it spilled out. But at the same time, I still loved that he was decisive with the basketball, had an early shot knowing that, you know, he gets off the floor first, he gets back on the floor first, he can get, you know, he's got, he's going to have a quicker second jump. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't really see anything particularly that I think Florida um, is, is utilizing him super well. And that's not a, I'm not, I'm not saying they're not utilizing him well, but I think right. it's a lot of just him just playing really good uh-huh. individual basketball within the uh the scheme that florida has yeah no i just it's just interesting that florida was able to keep going back to that well when you know really this was definitely the best front court test that they've had now granted you know watford is a little different big than than they've had there with b like emmett williams and florida did an excellent job of attacking darius days making him move his feet uh got him into foul trouble got I think their most productive LSU defensive wing, uh, Josh LeBlanc, not particularly effective against Florida. Again, aggressively attacked him, got got him into foul trouble. Um, but I also thought Florida did execute at a very high level in the second half offensively, Eric, because this is, at least watching them in this game, a much better defensive version of LSU, whether it's Moani Wilkinson that makes them uh, you know, much more better defensively and just his ability to stay in position and guard and stay on two feet and, you know, not leave these wide open closeouts that we became accustomed to watching LSU or, or whether it be, you know, Cam Thomas kind of bringing back a little bit of the waters active hands outside or, or Javante smart improving as a defender or uh, Eric Gaines, who I thought was really, really good for them defensively and then really, really bad for them offensively. Um, but but still like that classic freshman that that has huge upside on one end and you can see why Will Wade plays him uh you know what were your kind of thoughts on that yeah I thought they're really good defensively I shouldn't say really good I thought they're pretty good defensively for sure and I went in thinking they were quite poor and uh they're definitely much better than that and uh, I think that's pretty encouraging when you see that Florida was at, you know, 1.2 points per possession, 83 yeah. points, whatever number you want, um, 65% from the t- uh, from two-point range. Um, they obviously didn't shoot the three well, but still had a chance to, uh, uh, you know, to still put up points with, uh, with uh, you know, Noah Locke going 0 for 5 from three, Scotty Lewis going 0 for 3 from three. Uh, yeah, definitely was a, definitely was a fan of, of what LSU was doing defensively. And I think a big part of it was like Cameron Thomas, I, you know, watching him in some other matchups, I kind of thought of him as like a bit of a bigger, like 
almost like, you know, more explosive physical guard. And he has that element a little bit, but he's also just like really quick. And to see him shooting passing lanes, I was actually pretty crazy. Like, you know, Trey Mann um, shot a couple passing lanes and got his hands on a bunch of balls in the first half that were just like really good defensive plays. And then on the other side, like Cameron Thomas was doing it to him and shooting in front of him and denying the basketball. And there was a really good duel between two guys that are going to play in the NBA. And uh, that, which was really cool to see uh, when you've got two really good players like that competing defensively as well. Um, that's great. But, uh, and then I also think you, you do see like as much as Trenton Wadford listed as a, uh, listed as a point guard by the, uh, the LSU media, uh, media guide, uh, which in fantasy he handles the ball a lot. Um, uh, he, he is like, you know, legitimately really big versus like, it seems like the Alabama or Alabama. Um, it seems like LSU has had a bunch of those like Darius days style, like six foot seven Emmett Williams, six foot six, 240 pound, like guys that are like big, but not rim protectors. And uh, right. yeah, I just thought this, the lineup defensively just made a lot more sense for LSU and thought they, yeah, thought they defended well. And it's pretty cool when Florida put up points on a team that defends well. Yeah, no, it is. And again, a lot of it, Colin Castleton, which leads us to our listener question of the night from CLT Gator. Did you all foresee Castleton having this kind of impact in SEC play? Was he just a bad fit at Michigan? Why didn't he play very much? <laughs> I I wish I could say that I was like 100% this, uh, you know, called Castleton's going to be this good. <laughs> I wasn't quite bold enough. Um, and, and people, you know, who read my stuff or listen to the podcast will know that I said, Hey, I think right. he's a lot better than the guy that hardly got on the floor at Michigan. Uh, and, uh, I, I just wasn't bold enough to, to extrapolate his like really good small sample size analytics and like really good. Hey, he only played six minutes this game, but did like three awesome things in, in six minutes. I wasn't bold enough to say, well, there's a, you know, there's a guy who's going to be awesome. I thought he'd be good. I thought he'd push for the starting role. I still thought Omar Payne was going to be the starting center for this team. And um, I guess we'll see, but man, I think Castleton is, uh, is well ahead of that r- right now. Uh, in terms of how he didn't fit at, at Michigan, I, I, I'm just going to say it's a miss uh, for, for Juwan Howard, and his staff. And Hey, they've been getting players. They, they look, you know, haven't had some hiccups this season, but I think people are pretty happy with his coaching. Um, I, I, I just, I, I do think he, he, he demanded more minutes, obviously playing by John Teske. It's not like there was much of them, but I think every backup minute should have gone to Castleton. I think the fact that he didn't, I, I just think that's a miss because like I said, a lot of analytics in Colin Castleton's favor while he was at Michigan, you watch the film and he was doing awesome stuff in, in his brief minutes. Um, so as much as I want to say like, Oh, Florida found a gem and, Oh, oh, you know, Al Pinkins has him doing this and it's totally changed thing. Um, I think Colin Castleton has just uh, always been a good player who just was underutilized. Yeah, I mean, Austin Davis is the guy who's getting more minutes than him ahead of him. And he's just not a particularly productive player. Uh, so it's, it is a little curious. Uh, and, and to speak to just, you know, how easy it was for Jawan in year two to put Austin Davis kind of by the roadside, I mean, Hunter Dickinson has come in and, and he's playing 26 minutes a night. So uh, as a freshman ahead of Davids, who, who's basically playing less than he played last year, but played ahead of Colin Castleton. Um, so it's kind of interesting what's going on uh, with Michigan, but obviously that they're undefeated and, and happy with where they're at. And Florida's now five and a five and one and uh, two and O oh in the SEC. And I think pretty happy with their at. And a big reason that, that Florida, Gets there, I thought, uh, today was we talked a little bit about it already, but but I really thought, um, you know, just just an excellent basketball game from from Trey Mann, Eric. Uh, 
he didn't practice yesterday, Mike White said after the game. Um, so yeah, maybe whatever. Like maybe don't have him practice before big games. I, who knows? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, he he had the highest plus minus of anyone on the floor if you value that statistic. Uh, he only had two turnovers despite that duel with Cam Thomas, which I thought really yet another reason that this was like a really fun basketball game to watch, easy on the eyes. And then, you know, he let the game come to him offensively. I mean, there was that James Harden type moment. And uh, I saw the Gator basketball account, you know, <laughs> tweet out that uh, that spin jumper that he made. And, you know, there were some like really nice moments, but we knew that he had those shots. And, you know, I think the point is kind of, it seemed like when Florida really needed a bucket, he, he kind of could get the bucket for them. He had one drive where, uh, he got hammered by Watford, and there was no call. Um, I think to make it forty thirty seven before the Derigi triple, and um, it, you know just that kind of stuff, Eric. Like, it, it just Florida needs a basket. Who's the guy going to be now that there's Keontae on the bench? And and it was Trey Mann today. Well, and that's a question we've asked for you know the entire history of this podcast was hey when the, the going gets tough who's going to go get a shot for you know half a season it was Jalen Hudson more than half a season um, yeah. I'll say but um, you know he was the the answer at uh, for some time but uh, man as much as we love Chris Chioza it was never he was never that guy as much as we love Andrew Demhart. He was never that guy. Um, as much as we love Kayvon Allen, you know, even, even Keontae Johnson, those guys have, they're just not built that way. Not every player is, but, but Trey man with his size, with his uh, ability to get in and out of dribble moves so quickly and, and the yeah. way he can just glide around the floor and, and find space. And then every, time he he rises up to shoot he has just such good touch whether it's on balance or off balance it doesn't seem to matter to him uh so i think we just saw the best version of of trey man offensively uh and uh the, the one thing i did like and, and maybe this isn't the case maybe you know here we're, we're talking intangibles here but it was you know those drives in the first half that i thought when he had a couple acrobatic finishes and saw those go in it always just seems to get get scores going when they can make an acrobatic layup with some spin off the glass um uh, he had those plays early and then, you know, he gets settled in, shoots, gets a couple two point buckets. They were tough, but he made them. And then it was the, uh, the second half where he just hit those dagger threes. Uh, anytime that LSU seemed to really get back in the game, um, you, the, the, it was just, it was time for, for Trey man to isolate or, or get a ball screen. And, um, well, hey, one thing I actually did like to, this is one, this is one uh, thing that I, uh, I didn't talk about and I don't remember if they did in the first half. So I don't know if this is an adjustment, but I saw it in the second and I don't think I've seen it for a long time. Neil, you can correct me if you've seen it, uh, but they had Trey Mann screening for Tyree Appleby. They were running one, two pick and rolls. And that was something that, you know, we talk about on this podcast is just like so many teams in college basketball think that like, Hey, here's your, your point guard runs the pick and roll and your five man sets the screen and you run one, five pick and rolls. Cause that's kind of classic, but you know, you watch the NBA and they'll invert screen and rolls and, and have their four man handle the ball while a point guard sets a screen for them, or they'll run one, two pick and rolls. And that's what we saw from, from Florida. I thought that got, to, got them some good matchups and uh, man, just every time the ball leaves Trey man's hands, he shoots such, such an easy ball. The, the ball just zips off his, off his index finger and just, uh, uh, it just it just has one of those shots that you feel like it's always going in, and you know t- today it felt like it did. Yeah, no, I and I didn't notice the pick and roll thing. That's uh that's an awesome observation. I am probably going to rewatch this game, uh, and 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 check that out. I I, I also 
I think we'd be remiss before we move on to Alabama to not credit Florida defensively. Mike White, after the game, said he thought they were six or seven stops from being really good on defense, which I thought like made me laugh a little bit. <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> well, that's a lot of stops, Mike. <laughs> um, but uh, in the second half, you know, LSU's 12 of, 12 of 32 from the field, Eric. Um, Florida fouled too much. Uh, but you're also playing a really, really good offensive team, and I think that's going to happen. I do think Florida has fouled a little too much all season, but Florida played this matchup uh, zone that gave LSU a lot of problems, Eric, and and also seemed to fix whatever was going wrong on the perimeter in the first half, much more than just, oh, the ball wasn't going in. You know, the Tigers were 2 of 10 from deep in the second half. One of those was... Uh, a circus Watford three with two guys in his face. Uh, and the other one was a circus Cam Thomas three off a scramble play at the end of the game. Otherwise it was like, it seemed like there were very few uncontested triples. And when they were sort of uncontested, they were really deep, like Steph Curry type Cam Thomas stuff that, that honestly a lot of those didn't look close. No, and that's something that I think is always a credit to your defense when these shooters like Cam Thomas just start to step back and step back and step out further because uh, they'd rather not get into the teeth of the defense and uh, and risk getting getting stripped from guys digging in or or running into a shot blocker like Colin Castleton, uh, which and Castleton I I thought he was really good on uh, in, in the screen and roll defense that the Gators had. Um, LSU didn't run a lot of pick and roll, which I think was like a benefit to the Gators who, yeah, that wasn't oops. Like, I mean, I don't know how you scout the Gators, especially considering they've been off for three weeks and then played one game and then couldn't guard Vanderbilt in the pick and roll. I would think um, someone on that LSU staff is saying, Hey, let's play a bunch of pick and roll. They didn't. And that certainly made things easier for, for Florida. Uh, But I do think that, uh, yeah, once you see shooters like Cameron Thomas, just not pressuring defenses and instead saying like, Hey, I'm just going to go out to 28 feet because it's, it's going to be easier. uh, That's a credit to your defense. And uh, you know, seven or eight stops. I don't know if those count, like if Cam Thomas makes like three less, really bad shots that you're probably happy with as a defense and then get, you know, four or five more stops in addition to that. Uh, maybe that, maybe that works, but, uh, I, and there was also some moments too, where, um, where Florida got caught, whether it was Noah Locke or uh, Tyree Appleby, where um, they were in help side positions and uh, and they met Trent Wadford on the roll and he just finished over top of them because they're, you know, smaller players as much as they right. were in the right position. And uh, they just weren't big enough. And I mean, that is going to happen because no matter you know, both of those guys are going to be undersized when they're playing when they're playing the two guard position, or even you know playing the one guard position for um, for Tyree Appleby. So that's just what you're going to have to live with. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, that that is a that's a great that's a great comment from from Mike White. But uh, d- one thing too, definitely got to say that the effort, the battle level, the intensity uh, that was there that was there on the defensive side. And it was. I think that that's something that uh, uh, Mike White has been just like trying so hard to get out of his guys last couple of years. So he's got to be at least happy with that. Well, I thought they communicated too, because that's the one thing you mentioned it on the last podcast that you can hear stuff. And like Florida's switches were really good in the second half in particular, like when Florida switch, I thought particularly uh, Scotty Lewis and Anthony DeRuji switched a few times and it, those were seamless, Eric. 
Yeah, and it's funny as much as people think that like switching is kind of the lazy thing to do defensively, and like sometimes it is, and sometimes people make it lazy. But if you're going to be a good switching defense, you've got to you've got to jump to switches. You can't just you know sit back and uh, and let, let teams flow into you because good teams will will punish that. And uh, you know it's interesting. You know I tweeted uh, out about this. You tweeted out about it as well. Other people were tweeting about it. Uh, just about like the energy level of this basketball team and just like the fire they seem to play with and. Yeah. Uh, and and how it does, you know, it's it's different than what we've seen the last couple of seasons. And uh, the one thing as we're talking about being vocal is like, you know, I don't know exactly how, how you'd rank them. But if you were going to rank the Gators in terms of who is the most vocal, who is the loudest on the floor, you know, three of your top five, four or five guys are going to be Colin Castleton. Um, who being vocal got him in trouble once when it shouldn't have today. But uh, I, I love his intensity after finishing at ones. And it's Tyree Appleby, who's always talking and always shouting. And it's and it's Anthony Jerugi. Those are three of the loudest, most intense guys. And those are your transfers that you're bringing in this year. So um, yeah. for, for you know, we, we, I'm not, and I don't say that as, as any, I'm not taking that as like a recruiting slight or anything like that. It's the fact of the matter. But um, hey, the fact of the matter was Florida wasn't a very vocal, wasn't a very outwardly intense team. And they brought in three guys who crank up the intensity and it's awesome. I, and uh, I think it's just worth noting as we see that just this team seems to have a little bit of different of a DNA. Yeah, no, uh, really great point. And, and to see it from like Appleby on a day where, you know, sometimes you could see, you know, the adjustment to, to high level power five, power six basketball for him. Uh, you know, a couple, couple sort of unforced turnovers, but just never seems to rattle, like never lets it affect his effort. Um, and, and still made some huge passes uh, in the second half in particular when Florida needed him. And obviously on the play at the end of the first half where, you know, Daruji doesn't make that three, it's a one possession basketball game at the end. So uh it's great to see that kind of impact both from a leadership standpoint. And then obviously, you know, these guys doing the job on the basketball standpoint, Anthony DeRuji was terrific today. Uh, you know, just a, a wholesale uh, team victory, Eric. It, it was. And there's also a couple of moments too, where, where Tyree Appleby just like glided through, LSU's press and his ability to change direction and change yeah. speeds like he just like there was this one play it, it probably looked like nothing and and people are might not even know what I'm talking about because of it but there was one time where, where LSU was pressing and the ball got in inbound it's Appleby and he just like stood up straight for a half second to make the defender kind of ease up and stand up straight and then he just lowered his shoulder lowered his left shoulder to his right and then crossed over to his left and then the the, the defender was just like on his heels in cement and, and Appleby just like cruised at like 60% speed over half because he had broken the press in the matter of half a second because of the way he used his body to, to manipulate the defender. And it's just like subtle things like that, that are just like so awesome about little crafty basketball players. Uh, but, but Neil, I do think we need to talk about, uh, you know, one player that uh, maybe didn't have a great game and uh, that was Noah Locke. Yeah. You know, it's funny on the last show, like both of us kind of pointed out things about Noah Locke and I thought we saw a lot of them today. Right. Um, you know, and I'm not, again, it's not a pat on the back of Florida basketball hour. It's just that, you know, in fact, if Eric and I are seeing it as high school coaches, you know, what these, these, uh, highly paid collegiate coaches are, are seeing as well, Eric, although I guess they didn't see the pick and roll stuff, but certainly <laughs> they're challenging Noah Locke to, to make plays off the dribble and, and to dribble the ball more. And those are things that aren't going particularly well for Noah this season. 
No, and I mentioned on the last podcast that there's a bunch of numbers that are very unflattering to uh, to Noah Locke, kind of from an analytical standpoint, and and his on off numbers and on off numbers. You know, the more the more sample, the better. So so far this season, that sample is a little bit smaller or small, and it at least gets bigger every game. Uh, and you mentioned plus minus for for. Uh, for Trey Mann earlier, um, plus minus on its own is is not the greatest stat. You know, it's not like oh, this player had a plus, he had a good game. This player had a negative, it's a bad game. But when you look at plus minus, what you're really looking for are outliers. So, for example, if you're you know, your whole bench unit has minus, you say, oh, what happened there? Or if all your, you know, this, this combination of, of your four or five, you know, was really good. And um, you say, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. So um, you look at uh, a game like this, uh, every one of Florida's starters um, outside of Noah Locke were, were plus players. Um, Noah Locke was minus five. Noah Locke had the lowest plus minus on the Gators. Um, um, the only other player to be uh, in his realm was was Niles Lane, who um, had some good minutes, but uh, you know, just he was he was minus three. It it happens sometimes. So so when you're looking at plus minus, you're looking for outliers. So when you see all Florida starters or four of Florida starters are all positive, and then Noah Locke is minus five, and then you say, oh, who is playing most of the minutes uh, where Noah Locke wasn't on the floor? It was Tyree Appleby. Well, Tyree Appleby was plus seven, which was second on the Gators. Ah. So those are th- th- that's where you start to see. The the case I I don't want to say the case against Noah Locke that sounds so harsh, but the case against Noah Locke is 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 kind of <laughs> piling up. There are a lot of numbers like this that just say um, good things are few and far between when he, when he's on the floor, unfortunately, and especially in a game like this where he's zero for five from the three point line, he's just not bringing you a lot of value. And uh, again, you look at the first half where Florida had one assist for for so much for so long. A lot of that was due to the fact that if you've got you know Scotty Lewis and and Noah Locke out there, you don't have a ton of playmaking at times, especially if the defense is going to, who's, who's played Noah Locke like a hundred times in the last couple of ga- uh, years. They, they know to make him try to bounce the ball and make plays. So uh, yeah, it's rough. But again, after we kind of talked on the last podcast about the fact that there's some unfortunate numbers piling up for Noah Locke, yeah. um, that teams are forcing him to try to bounce the ball and make plays and it's not going well. Well, this was another game where, um, he had an outlier bad number that really seems to you, you, you look at some of these lineup data things and you look at some on off numbers and you look at Noah Locke and he's got to get a, a red circle around it because he's the one the one player when you look at the lineup data from today that you say, um, ooh, there is uh, something that needs to be investigated. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I, and speaking of these plus minus things, so this was the third game that this LSU five started, but collectively on the season and remember you know, obviously for the obvious reasons, LSU has played more games than Florida. Um, and so that five for LSU entered with a plus 24, um, which is pretty staggering. It's staggeringly good. And uh, you know what it was today? Minus three. <laughs> wow. So, you know, uh, pretty impressive. Uh from Florida, I'd love to say they can sit back because, like, a struggling Mississippi State or something is coming to town. Um, that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> Florida's going to go to Tuscaloosa, play a team that that I think Eric and I both slated in the top five in the SEC uh, in our preseason conversations, or if not in the top five, just on the outside of it. Uh, did you have them top five? I, I think you did. I did, yes. Okay, I, had them so- number, I had them fifth. 
Yeah, so we had him. I had him fourth. Eric had him fifth. Uh, really good. Uh, much more like what Nate Oates wants to play with. Uh, you know, they didn't wholesale flip their roster by any means, but they definitely uh, retooled it a little bit to make it better. Um, they started that by kind of bringing in the like big guy that he likes to play his uh, his offense with, and and so it's weird to start a discussion of Alabama with Jordan Bruner, but I think it's important to just because it's different than the kind of lumbering bigs that he had to like run his offense with last year because Bruner's a guy who can dribble, shoot, uh, and then also picks it up defensively, like not the kind of guy you think of when you think of like an Ivy League grad transfer. No, and one thing I, I really like about Ken Palm is if, if you look at an individual player's profile on Ken Palm, it'll scan all their numbers that are in the, the Ken Palm algorithm, and they say, like, hey, here are some players from the past that um, that uh, they have a similar statistical profile to. And uh, one of the ones for Jordan Bruner is uh, is Chandler Parsons in 2011. <laughs> and uh, while I don't think he's, like, exactly Chandler Parsons, um, uh, I think, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting place to start. Jordan Bruner's definitely uh, taller, a little bit longer, uh, maybe a little bit less explosive. Um, but uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, Neil, someone who's uh, who's particularly skilled, and and when you've got a guy who's you know six foot ten or whatever Bruner is, and, uh, and can uh, can really you know score off the post anytime he gets a smaller matchup on him, uh, a really good defender, um, active defender. Yeah, he's a really good player, and I think there's something that like really appeals to uh, the soul of a heart the, the heart of a college basketball fan that's like so cool about like ivy league athletes like that's just like so cool that someone can like compete at yale and like play high levels of basketball and then like go to alabama and do the same so you know what i'm not going to be cheering for him against the gators but i do really like jordan bruner yeah he's a good player and he allows them w- with now some added length uh which i think is the biggest thing that that they've added to kind of do what what Oates likes to do, which is play four pretty fast, big wings. Most of all, who can shoot, uh, or or at least four guys that are fast and can shoot uh, around kind of a, a modern big who who can pass and shoot and isn't just a you know a guy that's going to lumber down inside. They like to <clears throat> they like to space the floor. Like I said, uh, we would come back to flooding the corners. They're going to do that on almost every single possession. Uh, especially off rebounds. They love to race down, put two guys up in the, in the corner and get it spaced out where you can drive and kick out. Um, they're going to attack the basket. They get to the free throw line at a high rate. Uh, they kick out. They shoot a ton of threes. They shot 957 three-pointers last year, Eric. That was fourth in the country. Um, it was by far the most in the SEC. Uh, and their tempo rank, um, length of possession ranked rather, um, not tempo rank, but their length of possession was uh, sixth in the country. It is fourth this year, so they are actually playing a little faster than they did last year. I don't, that number is not current through the Tennessee game, but we should note again to our listeners that they beat uh, Tennessee tonight, uh, the number seven team in the country, perennial SEC favorite, uh, not perennial. Um, kind of the universal preseason SEC favorite this year uh, and in Knoxville. So uh, just a really good team and, and a really good system and a, a system that I know Eric likes because uh, Nate Oates is sort of cutting edge, like really an analytics guy. He was a math teacher. 
<laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love Nato's story. Like uh, just a guy who like loved coaching in high school and did a good job and got a job because of it, did well there, went to Buffalo, did well. And now he's at Alabama, which is like, who thinks about, uh, <laughs> who thinks about like going from, uh, <laughs> uh, going from, you know, Buffalo to, uh, to Alabama. And, and one thing that's awesome too, is one of the, one of you know, living in Canada, um, I've not been to a lot of college basketball games, uh, unfortunately, um, would love to go to so, so, so many more. Uh, but one very interesting game, um, I did go to was a couple of years back was, uh, I had a friend's wedding in Buffalo. And, uh, so it was like just after, and it was just after Christmas. Um, so I went to a Buffalo at Canisius, uh, basket college basketball game, um, uh, Canisius. Um, Ooh, if you, uh, you know, been to been to a couple beautiful campuses in my life um canisius uh, not one of them uh but man <laughs> did it make for a fun uh, college basketball atmosphere and um and and nate oates just has a great kind of demeanor about him um his enthusiasm seems very real to me where a lot of times coaches that are the like <clears throat> rambunctious type it just comes across as ingenuine to me yeah um, an example of that might be eric musselman you know it might i might be just uh could be might could be could come across that way to some people maybe uh but yeah nato it's so genuine i thought it was hilarious when he called out uh, when he called out coach k like he did the uh, a couple weeks ago but um though he shortly had to walk it back um which might have been a wise decision but uh before you know the ncaa showed up at his door for you know calling out coach k uh but yeah i i, I really like nato and i honestly do have a ton of respect as well for the fact that they truly do like, this is a thing you watch every coach's um, preseason press conferences and they say, Hey, we're going to get up and down. We're going to run and we're going to shoot a lot of threes. And then like, lo and behold, most of them don't. Uh, But you know, NATO says he's going to do it. And uh, you look and every year, his teams play fast and they shoot more threes than anyone else. So um, man, I, he's recruiting really well. And I don't know exactly what, you know, what parents, what high school coaches, what AU coaches, what players really kind of, think about and admire but um i think some of them have to say hey this coach said that we're gonna you know that they're gonna run up and down the floor and, and shoot a lot of threes and, and use their team this way but hey the the numbers show that they don't um but anyone who looks at nate oates says hey he practices what he preaches he his teams play exactly how he sells it yeah they, they really do and they've got personnel this season that matches up with it one way he's recruiting really well is by invading canada uh one of their <laughs> one of their starters uh, is a kid named Josh Primo. Uh, he has come in and started. He was the youngest player. Um, here's a fun fact. The youngest player at the 29 FIBA U19 World Cup Games in Greece um, played the Team Canada. Tell us about Josh Primo, Eric. <laughs> Josh Primo, he's a favorite. I mean, uh, you look at him right away, and uh, he just has that look of a, of a modern basketball player, uh, where he's six foot five, six foot six, uh, long arms, and uh, he's pretty thin, um, which is also what you do see a, l- a little bit more from uh, the modern college basketball player. Um, but yeah, he is he is just kind of one of those jack of all trades. Um, can can dribble the ball a little bit, can handle it. Uh, he can shoot it a little bit. He's not a great shooter, but he's a good shooter. He's like a pretty good defender that can switch. Uh, I think he's just like exactly what everyone's looking for right now. And I, I don't think he has that one skill that, uh, that you've got to be really, you know, uh, afraid of right now. But, but like you said, I mean, he just turned 18 years old. It's kind of like when Kyra Lewis was in, uh, uh, was in Alabama is just like one of the youngest players. And uh, I think, I think Josh Breen was going to be an awesome player, but uh, like you said, one of the, one of the best to come out of Canada recently. And that's, uh, that's saying a lot considering the, uh, the talent that's coming out of there. Yeah, and he's he's one of nine or ten guys that that Nate Oates plays. They start five. Uh, they have seven 
that I would say they rely on heavily. Um, the sixth man is Javon Quinterly, who was a really highly touted player, went to Villanova, actually went to Arizona. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> went to Arizona, um, gets caught up in the bagman stuff, ends up at Villanova. It's all bad there. The FBI is probing around. They want to talk to him. Th- things are just bad. Uh, his freshman season at Villanova is a disaster. Um, and so he transfers. They thought he would get eligible right away last season. He doesn't because the NCAA does NCAA things. And now what he gives Nate Oates, I think, is somebody that can really get in where he wants on the floor with his speed, but is also a super high-level passer. Um, not the best shooter, probably the worst shooter on their team, in my opinion. Um, but, like, do you have to be when you play with the best shooter in the country and some of the other guys that Alabama has? Yeah, Quinterly is almost, and you're you're seeing this more and more and more, but he, he seems like kind of their, like, transition point guard. Uh, but then in the half court, he's sometimes kind of like gives it up to a Jaden Shackelford or, or even like a, a John Petty to, to kind of initiate things. Um, or like you said, of course it's, it's Jordan Bruner. So, uh, and you, you're starting to see that a little bit more in, in basketball where it's like, Hey, you, you got kind of a quick kind of pace um, speedster like Javon Quinterly. And then in, in your half court, you play out of someone else. And, and a lot of times it's Bruner. And uh, like you said, I mean, it's, it's another kind of modern basketball um, thing from, from Nate Oates. So uh, how they kind of guard him will be interesting because um, uh, I just feel like Florida's just had this, this would be a classic, like, Hey, uh, you know, Florida has this guy that they're going to lay off and he ends up going four for six from the three point line. Um, Quinterly definitely has that, uh, that kind of potential. Uh, but, uh, what, once again, I mean, you, you've kind of got Javon Quinterly, who's pretty small and then you've got, um, or, you know, d- average point guard size he's like six one then you've got jordan bruner who's not your traditional center but he's six nine or six ten um and then you've got three kind of interchangeable wings so how, how that kind of works for florida will be really interesting particularly i you know i'm very interested in um who plays it, it, that kind of two guard role more is it going to be a noah lock or is it going to be a, a tyree appleby uh which one of those guys kind of um can defend well enough which of them can make plays against against length uh that'll be uh, that'll be the kind of interesting lineup this uh question for me yeah no it's i also want to see how florida guards john petty um john petty has has had like all sorts of different games against florida he's gone absolutely nuts and then he's been super quiet and you've wondered you know what all the hype is about i'll tell you this he entered the Tennessee game shooting 29% from three, and people were kind of like, what's going on with John Petty? Those are not John Petty-type numbers. So tonight in their upset over the Vols, he was four or four from three, six or seven from the field, and had 17 points. He's also like a really good rebounder, by the way. Um, he was the Crimson Tide's second leading rebounder last year and led the Crimson Tide in double-doubles last season. Uh, actually has eight double doubles in his career, which has lasted 25 years. So I'm not really that surprised by that, but um, (laughs) no, it just, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he's just a tremendous basketball player. They have so many ways that they can score. You know, I mean, Jaden Shackelford was their second leading scorer. He hasn't even started every game and he had almost 500 points last year. Only Colin Sexton, uh, Alabama's media guy is awesome. So only Colin Sexton had uh, more points as a freshman. 
uh, at Alabama than Jaden Shackelford. Um, you know, pretty simple, all SEC freshman team type player. Uh, and a guy that, like Eric said, if you get him downhill, uh, you know, he's not a guy that's going to dunk over you, but he'll run past you and he can finish at the rim. And also, like, you can't slouch off of him because he'll bury threes. Uh, you know, they love to shoot it. They were 10 of 20 uh, tonight in Knoxville from downtown. So, you know, if they're going to shoot 50% Tuesday night at home, forget about it. We'll pack up and play Kentucky. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit surprised uh, the fact that they only shot 20. I, I, I would have expected, <laughs> uh, expected a whole lot more. But, man, uh, Tennessee is a, a very good defensive team. I think that that's really why Tennessee is, is so good. I, I don't think that they are special offensively, but they are awesome defensively. And uh, for, for Alabama to score on them, they could score on anyone. And as much as uh, I thought that Florida played some improved defense against LSU, they're going to really be tested. Uh, so I, I look at the way that um, that Alabama defends. And, um, you know, they've, they've got some good pieces, but I, I don't see them as a great defensive team. And, and they're going to play primarily man-to-man defense, which Florida has done really well against so far. So uh, it could really come down to, to how well does Florida defend. Yeah, it really could. And and the other bugaboo for NATO's teams, both at Buffalo and, and at Alabama, to some extent has been um, not that they're bad rebounding teams, but they do have games where, you know, they aren't great because that's just the way that can happen when you play that way, when you're, you play, you know, five out at times and you got all these dudes that are fast. Sometimes you get some of the thinner modern basketball type players that Eric was talking about. You have trouble on the glass. Herb Jones is the one guy that doesn't really fit the NATO. It's profile. He's their best rebounder. Bruner is a pretty good rebounder. He really banged with uh, John Fulkerson tonight. And I know when you go to Gator Country and read Eric's preview, shameless plug for him, um, you know, I'm sure that Eric will mention how well Bruner did against all SEC Fulkerson. You know, to, to get 8.6 boards and three blocks against Tennessee is just monster stuff for an Ivy League grad transfer. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Florida can take advantage of them on the grass. The Gators just out-rebounded LSU, which, which again, you know, we can probably count on one hand how many times Florida has out-rebounded a super athletic team in the Mike White era. Uh, so, it, you know, it's a different animal that, that the Gators are fielding, and that's, again, without Keontae Johnson. But this will be, be a big test. You know, if Florida may benefit from uh, – the lack of a COVID crowd to greet a team that just beat Tennessee on the road. That would be a rabid environment in a non-COVID year, uh, but certainly going to play a basketball team that's going to be super confident. Oh, yeah. After being Tennessee, they've, they've, they deserve to feel confident. That's uh, that's no small feat. And uh, I think you did mention an interesting kind of angle to the game. And it's, hey, does Colin Castleton, um, how does he do against Jordan Bruner? Because I think he's significantly larger than than Jordan Bruner. But like yeah. you said, Jordan Bruner just uh, just banged with a pretty pretty physical guy in John Fulkerson. Though Fulkerson is not, not not a big dude, to be honest. I think he just plays so much bigger than his frame. But man, he pushed around, he pushed around Kerry Blackshear. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, uh, I think Colin Castleton might be, um, a bit more fan of, of contact and, and a bit, maybe even a bit stronger. He's definitely longer. So just Florida get those kind of deep post touches for him where he can just get to that right hand and, and finish over the top of Bruner or, or get every miss and, and carve out space and get a bunch of offensive rebounds. Uh, that, that, that could be the difference point because, uh, that's one thing about Alabama. They, yeah, they don't have a, a ton of kind of bulk in the middle and uh if, if florida can can win that matchup that's a good place to start 
Yeah, no, I mean, it really is kind of where you start, I think. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Fulkerson, 6'8", 215, so definitely not, like, as long or as tall as Castleton. But, uh, you know, we'll see. The, the other thing is that Alabama can run Alex Reese out if they need to. He's another guy that maybe doesn't necessarily fit the mold of an Oates-type player, but he gave Kerry Blackshear quite a few problems as well last year. Remember how crazy that game was. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, it'll be a great test for the Gators. Um, always harder on the road. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. This is I, – I didn't say this last podcast and kind of felt when I was thinking back on the show, uh, you know, I said, oh, should I have brought up that I feel like this is the toughest stretch of Florida's schedule? Uh, like this six game stretch, um, you know, just seems like the toughest part. Uh, we don't know necessarily what Alabama team will show up. They're very, they've been very inconsistent in their first 10 games. And they've lost at home to Western Kentucky, who isn't bad by any stretch of the imagination, Eric. But, you know, if you beat Tennessee and Knoxville, you'd think that you wouldn't have a terrible time with Western at home. Um, they got blown out by a very average Stanford team. Uh, and then uh, lost somebody else that's pretty good who um, it's escaping me right now. But uh, in any event, you know, this is a big game. It's kind of one of those games that swings when you start talking about your seed, uh, when you start talking about your conference title aspirations. You know, and, and I really feel like the way that Florida's chemistry is, uh, the way that they seem to be playing for one another. Like, you know, I'm not certain that this team is like, oh, well, we don't have Keontae, we can't win the SEC. I mean, I think they're clearly a group that has some goals. So it's just going to be a, a very fascinating uh, contest Tuesday night. Well, it, I don't know how much the team, like, really thought about this last year. Or, uh, it could be could be not at all. But, I mean, if 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 I was the coaching staff – I'm probably thinking that if you're if this is last year and you're looking forward to 2020, 2021, you're probably thinking we don't have Scotty Lewis and you're probably thinking we don't have Keontae Johnson because they both go pro. So, you know, hey, if Keontae Johnson did go pro, would you they have filled that spot with a, you know, graduate transfer, a transfer you could play right away? Um, maybe, yeah, probably even. Um, how impactful would that player have been? Who knows? But at the same time, I, I think that they probably were thinking, hey, we probably don't have Keontae Johnson this year and, and, and Scotty Lewis, because they go pro and suddenly um, they end up having those guys and, and that's awesome. And um, obviously they now don't have Keontae Johnson, but again, they, the, the framework of the team to still be pretty good without him was, was there. And I, I think the team thinks they can win. And I, I think they can win. I, I still think uh, th this group that we saw on the floor against a good LSU team that, um, that really competed and was able to, to win despite the fact that they weren't hitting threes, uh, that kind of shows where, where this, this team can go. And again, they're far from a finished piece defensively, um, lots of room to go grow there. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we'll know a, a little bit to a lot more after they, they play Alabama and then a, a Kentucky team that, you know, who knows what's going on with that team that just gutted out a win over a not very good Mississippi state team in double overtime. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's it, to see the confidence they showed against LSU, uh, that I think they know that they can still have an awesome season, no matter, no matter what happens. Yeah, no, not never easy to win road games against good teams in the SEC. Just ask Alabama. They did it tonight. Uh, and now Nate Oates has the challenge of kind of refocusing his guys too. Um, 
So, you know, it will be fascinating, and we will be back to break it all down and talk about Kentucky uh, midweek. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Happy New Year.